Well, if you want to take your Bible and turn, this is going to be our last week for a while in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take a turn, not really a turn, I guess it would be a hard left turn in your Bible to Genesis and spend uh, some time in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, but this is an important section here in Mark, and it's kind of a natural pivot point, it's a natural point to kind of take a break. Have you ever felt like God spit in your eyes? We are going to read this morning about a man for whom that literally happened. Jesus spit in his eyes, and it was the best thing that ever happened to him. So let's just kind of jump right in and set the scene. Uh, Jesus had just fed the 4,000 over in the Decapolis to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee, and then he and the disciples had traveled by boat over to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and when they got there, a group of Pharisees came down to confront them and to interrogate Jesus, demanding that he provide some kind of definitive sign that he really was the Messiah. How, how, how could he teach the way he did? How could he do the things he did? What authority did he have? He needed to give them a sign, but he flatly refused to give them what they had hypocritically demanded. And then he and the disciples get back in the boat. And on the ride across to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, probably the northeast part of the the sea, it becomes clear that the disciples themselves are still blind to the reality of who Jesus is. It's reminiscent of the words spoken to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, and this is is the voice of God speaking to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The people of Israel in Isaiah's day were made hard by hearing the word of the Lord, by hearing it and refusing to believe, by hearing it and not understanding. Their hearts were hardened. And now the nation of Israel in that time period when Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, they were largely being hardened under the direct voice of Jesus. And even the disciples were still pretty blind as to who it was that was in the boat with them. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So the disciples and Jesus, they come to the shore at the city of Bethsaida, and scholars debate exactly where Bethsaida is. It's either directly on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, or it's on the Jordan River about a mile in from the sea. There would have been a port there in either case. This is the city we learned from John chapter 1 and verse 44 that Philip was from there, Peter, Andrew. 
They, they all grew up in this town. And if you remember from chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, this takes place very near to Bethsaida. Uh, Jesus, as soon as that's over, sends the disciples in the boat to go up towards Bethsaida, and then the storm blows their, their boat out into the sea. So this is a city where there's a lot of people who are very familiar with Jesus. They're very familiar with his power and his works. They've seen him extend this little amount of food to feed the multitudes. And and so it makes sense that they would then take this blind man to Jesus. They see Jesus come. They see this man who at some point has become blind in his life. And they say, let's get him down to Jesus. And they, they start begging Jesus, it says, strongly entreating him, asking that he would heal this man. And so often what we see in the Gospels is that this kind of request happens and Jesus heals him right there. But not here. Jesus instead takes him by the hand and takes him out of town. He takes him out of the village. And and throughout Mark's Gospel, though Jesus often does public miracles, we do see that he's frequently pulling people aside and telling them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell them what I've done for you or uh, like in chapter 7 with the deaf man with the speech impediment Jesus had pulled him out of the crowd and here he does the same thing he pulls him out of the crowd and not just out of the crowd but clear out of the village presumably even away from those who had brought him to Jesus in the first place it says Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the village and then Jesus goes back to the same thing he did in chapter 7 with using spit in chapter 7, he had spit and then touched the man's tongue, like maybe spit on his tongue or spit on his hand and touched his tongue. Here, Jesus spits directly into the guy's eyes. It doesn't say, like, if you're familiar with John 9, he, he there he spits on the ground, makes some mud, and rubs the mud on the guy's eyes. Here it just says he spits in his eyes. And I still don't totally know what to make of the use of this. This is interesting because... These two miracles, in chapter 7 where he heals that deaf and mute man, and here in chapter 8 where he heals this blind man, they're the only two miracles that occur in Mark's gospel that don't also show up in Matthew or Luke. Um, most, Most of Mark's miracles show up in both of those books, and all of the rest show up in at least one of the others. But this is the only, these are the only two that don't. And they're also, Matthew and Luke never show Jesus using another substance, anything besides his word to heal. Uh, so it, it's an interesting distinction. I, I, it seems like it's significant, but I don't know what to make of it other than healers in the ancient world also use saliva like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And and so maybe this is just a familiar thing for the to those around to see a healer using, using this human saliva. But in any case, we do see Jesus using a means. <clears throat> the only... Only three times we see Jesus using spit are here, these two stories, and then in John 9. But this miracle is different than all the others in in this. Unlike anywhere else in the Gospels, this miracle doesn't take on the first try, right? It, usually Jesus performs a healing, and then he starts giving instructions. Don't go into town or... Do go tell this person, go wash in the pool of Siloam, etc. Here, Jesus heals, well, he spits on the man's eyes and then he touches him, and then he asks him a question. Can you see? Yeah. 
Can you see clearly? And and his response, I heard Elizabeth chuckle as we read this. Andy always thinks this is like the funniest story. He says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Which tells us this man had not been born blind, right? He's not like the man in John 9, because he knows what trees look like. So this, at some point, he's lost his eyesight. He knows what trees look like. And, and when Jesus says, can you see? He says, yeah, kind of. It's, it's not all the way back. I, I, it's better than it was. He's no longer completely blind. But he's not actually surrounded by walking trees. And so Jesus touches his eyes again and completes the miracle. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And now, English, we only have one word for seeing, really, like saw, sight. He's got all the different tenses here. But uh, in Greek, I think there's like nine different nuanced verbs for seeing, and they're all here in in these few verses. Um, So this is obviously the point of the text is, is seeing. But then Jesus picks back up the secrecy, tells the man to go home, but he says, don't even enter the village, like skirt around town and get back to your house. Jesus still is not interested in this point at crowd ministry, or we might say he's no longer interested in crowd ministry in Galilee, having been pretty demonstrably rejected by the Pharisees in this region. He's, he's done dealing with the crowds, and he heads north with his disciples towards Caesarea, Philippi. So, why does Jesus do this slow rolled multi-stage healing here instead of just healing him the way he did everybody else? Was it a weird circumstance where Jesus didn't have enough power? Was the man so faithless that Jesus had to try twice? Had Jesus forgotten to get prayed up before he tried to heal this man? Well, I, I think anybody who can say to a dead man, get up, <laughs> he has plenty of power. He's not wait, he wasn't waiting for Lazarus to cooperate with him and have faith when he's told him to come out of the grave, right? Jesus doesn't need cooperation. I think there's another significance here. It's important when we're reading these healing stories in the gospel to remember that the gospel writers aren't just recording history. They are doing that. They're recording things that happened. But they're not just picking some stories from Jesus' life. John tells us in John 21, 25 that if we were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, the world couldn't hold all of the books that would be written. So the things they chose to record, they chose very purposefully. They chose intentionally. There's there's attention that needs to be paid not just to what they wrote, or, or but how they wrote it, how they structured their narratives. Each of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is carefully constructed to draw us in and and to teach us something, even in the way that they're structured. So when we're looking at the miracles they included, we need to ask the question, how does this one story move the big story of the gospel forward? And like I said at the beginning, Mark 8, 22 to 26 is a transitional text. So we're going to think a little bit about what comes before and what comes after. Last week, we looked at the first half of this chapter. And we spent a substantial amount of time on verses 14 to 21, which talks about the spiritual blindness of the disciples. And that that's a clue, I think, to why Mark would place this story about a physically blind man right afterwards. In, in general, we don't get a lot of physical descriptions of people in the scriptures. When they are included, it should cause us to perk up our ears and take notice. Uh, an example of this in the Old Testament, you think about in the book of 1 Samuel, Eli. 
when Eli gets the message that the ark of the Lord had been taken, we are told that Eli was had become blind and that he was very heavy. Well, if you're reading that story, why, why is Eli fat? His sons have been stealing the fat from the Lord's sacrifices. And though he isn't actually doing that, he's not stopping them. And it's pretty likely then that he's eating. The, he didn't take it from the Lord's sacrifices, but his sons, he, he can't see anymore. And so they're the ones preparing the food. He's getting fat off of the fat of the Lord's sacrifices. He's become heavy through spiritual malpractice. He, he's also become blind, and you see that in the story with the boy Samuel, that it's a, and actually a couple of places, uh, Eli's become spiritually blind, not just physically blind. When, when God is calling to Samuel, it takes Eli three times to realize, oh, God's talking to him. When he sees Hannah praying in the temple, he thinks, ah, oh, she must be drunk. He doesn't see a woman pouring out her heart to God. And like, the priest should get this, of all people. He's become both spiritually heavy through malpractice and blind. And that physical description tips us off to those other things we see in the text. Here in Mark, the disciples have had the living word of God living with them. They are in the boat with him there in verses 14 to 21. And yet seeing him, they do not see. Like the people of Israel in Isaiah's day and in their own day, they had the word of God, and yet it hadn't made them grow soft and sensitive to God. Instead, they're getting dull. Their, their hearts are hardened. But unlike so many of the crowds, unlike the Pharisees, after years of teaching and witnessing Jesus' miracles and his rebuking them for their slowness and their hardness of heart, they are starting to kind of get it. You see that in the transition after verse 26 to verses 27 to 30. There, Jesus and the disciples go far north from where they had previously ministered. It's like he's pulling them away from everyone else to start teaching them about what's to come. And while they're strolling through that region, a region that's named for Caesar, who it was claimed was the son of a god, Jesus asked the disciples who people thought that he was. And they say, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say one of the other prophets verse 28, but all, all those answers are wrong, right? Not, none of those answers hits the nail on the head. And Jesus turns the question to them personally. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, our favorite big mouth in all the Bible, says, you are the Christ, which is exactly right. He gets it, right? He has spiritual sight. And then we read verses 31 to 33. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So does Peter see correctly when he says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah? Yes. Mark's gospel begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Peter's right when he says that, but his vision is not yet clear. When Jesus starts to unfold what it means to be the Messiah, that he's going to, he's going to go to the cross and be 
he's going to suffer and he's going to die and then he's going to rise again. Peter rebukes him and says, no, Lord, that, that can't happen. And Jesus returns that rebuke by calling Peter Satan. Peter's beginning to see, but it's like trees walking around. He, he knows Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't know what it means to be the Messiah. He, he does not yet have clear vision, even after the transfiguration story in the next chapter, chapter 9, where James and Peter and John see Jesus in his glory. Peter is terrified and just starts babbling about, uh, we could build some tents up here for you. Wouldn't that be great? He doesn't get it. Things won't become clear for Peter and the other disciples until after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus when he pours out his spirit. When the spirit's poured out at Pentecost, then Peter gets up and boldly proclaims from the Old Testament about what Jesus has done, the necessity of his death and resurrection, and how repentance for our wickedness and sin is necessary and salvation is readily available through Jesus, the crucified and risen Christ. So early in Jesus' ministry, the disciples are blind to who he is. They know he's important. They know he's a big deal. They're following him around. But they don't clearly see who he is. And then it, it starts to dawn on them. Jesus, uh, Peter makes a right confession here, a wonderful confession that Jesus is the Christ. But it's still not clear what that means yet. It wasn't until after Jesus had finished his work on earth and poured out the Spirit that they gained full spiritual sight. And even at that, there's still a sense of waiting for spiritual sight to become completely clear. 1 John 3.2 says that when Christ returns, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Well, are you yet like Christ perfectly? No, and the implication there is that we don't yet see him as he is, and that's why we are not yet like him. We, as 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, see through a mirror dimly, or I, I love the King James there, see through a glass darkly. We can now truly see who Jesus is in his work. By the power of the Spirit, our eyes can be open and we can see that he is the Christ. But seeing him with crystal clear vision, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. That's a privilege we still don't yet have. So, we can see in Mark's gospel that this text, it this, this miracle of healing this man in stages is a picture of what's happening for the disciples at this point in Jesus' ministry. The, the vision's starting to get clearer, but it's still not there yet. But what does it have to do with us today? What can we learn besides just understanding Mark's gospel better? And that's important. But is, are there lessons for us in our daily lives? I think one of the chief lessons we can learn from reading this text is that Jesus often chooses to do things in stages. He almost never works on our timetable. Think about this in terms of how you came to Christ. Did it happen all at once? And in a sense, that's yes, like you trust in Christ in a moment. But there is, for every single person, whether you realize it or not, a long lead-up to that moment. I think I've heard the testimony of pretty much everybody in this room. But I'm just going to use my own for the sake of illustration. Like, I grew up in a Christian home. We went to church every Sunday, went to Sunday school, went to VBS, 
I was encouraged to read the Bible on my own. I did read the Bible on my own quite a bit as a kid. I don't remember a time that I didn't comprehend, at least at some level, the basic facts of the gospel. That God created the world, but that humanity had rebelled through sin. We could be forgiven because Jesus had sent, Jesus had come into the world. The Father had sent the Son so that he could live a perfect life and die an atoning death in our place, and that that same Son, Jesus, had risen from the dead, and if we trust in him, we have eternal life, and not just not just forgiveness of our sins, but eternal life with God that starts right now. Like, I, I've always known that in my head. I prayed, prayed to receive Jesus when I was two years old and was baptized when I was nine. I don't ever remember consciously not believing. And at the same time, like it has, it was really dim, right, compared to now. I went through a period between the time when my baby brother was still born when I was 13 to shortly after high school when I was deeply angry with God. I thought God owed me a better life than I had. And it wasn't until a moment of <laughs> my youth leader slash elder in the church slash neighbor slash my mentor waking me up very early one morning when I had been out carousing quite late that night that I realized, oh, that stuff about sinners, it's actually talking about me. Like I knew that in the sense that logically, all human beings are sinners. I am a human being, therefore I must be a sinner. But like it didn't dawn on me that I was not intrinsically a good person to whom God owed things. I am a sinner. And the gospel is really good news, news that I need. It was a slow dawning of some 18 years of hearing Bible stories and hearing sermons and hearing lectures and reading the Bible myself and having conversations with older, more mature Christians before I really got the point, before I really saw what I thought I knew all along. To pull an example from church history, I was recently reading about Augustine, one of the most influential theologians in church history. And historians of, of Augustine's life all, often speak of him having three different conversions. The, the first, when he was 18, was a conversion to the love of wisdom. He was reading Cicero, the Roman orator, and he, he realized, I need, I need to pursue wisdom. I need to look for the truth. And in that process, over the next few years, he then came to a, a second conversion, which was uh, the life of philosophy, where he was committing his life to meditating on and trying to understand the great truths of the world. And it wasn't until a third conversion over a decade later, where he, for some reason, had Paul's letter to the Romans nearby him. And as he says in, in his uh, autobiography, spiritual autobiography, Confessions, that he, he heard a voice saying, take up and read. And he picks up Paul's letter to the Romans and reads these words in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in reading those verses, he was convicted of the life that he had pursued because in addition to looking for wisdom, he was looking for all kinds of other pleasure in this life, a life that was filled with a long road of godless philosophy and chasing sexual gratification through illicit means, and then finding those things empty 
ultimately led Augustine to when he read that text, he was cut to the quick by the Spirit. Even the life of the Apostle Paul, whom we think of as being like the ultimate in a radical conversion story, right? God knocks him off his horse and puts scales on his eyes. That's pretty radical. But we can still see the slow-burning work of the Spirit. From his youth, he had been a student of God's Word under the finest exegetes in first-century Judaism. He studied under, studied under Gamaliel. Like, there was nobody who was studying God's Word harder than the Apostle Paul before he knew Jesus. Do we think, really, that God's Word was not accomplishing something in him, leading him up to that moment? God was certainly at work. I love this quote from, from John Piper. He says, In every situation and every circumstance of your life, God is always doing a thousand different things that you cannot see and you do not know. I think that truth should be a real encouragement to us as we seek to evangelize and make disciples. Jesus almost never uses the methods that we think would be most efficient and most effective. He generally chooses to do things in a fashion that to us seems slow, inefficient, and like it's burning an awful lot of daylight. Like, doesn't he know that he's coming back soon? Like, shouldn't this go faster, Jesus? This is one of those great mysteries where we must commit ourselves to doing things his way and trusting him, even when it runs counter, maybe especially when it runs counter to human wisdom. Getting together to, to pray, sing, read the Bible, preach the Bible, and celebrate the sacraments doesn't seem like the best way to draw a crowd, and it doesn't, in earthly terms, it doesn't seem like a good way to try to change lives. There's got to be something more effective than this. Have people watch some TED Talks. Go do something inspirational. But this, the Lord Jesus promises, will work. He will build his church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So scattering the seed of the word and telling people about Jesus, sharing gospel literature, passing along good sermon podcasts you've heard, then watering those seeds by inviting people over to dinner, speaking a kind word, praying for them when they're struggling, may all seem inefficient and ineffective as a way to introduce people to the God of the universe. People so often don't respond, or they respond negatively, or it seems like they only get part of what you're trying to tell them. But we can take heart, because sometimes Jesus will spit on our eyes and then touch twice. Like, he doesn't do everything all at once that we think needs done. So, we should be persistent. We should keep sharing, keep loving, keep speaking the truth in love, and trust that sometimes the very same people that we think they are just never going to get it. They are never going to respond. Are the very same ones to whom the Lord will choose to reveal himself and through whom he will do great things for his glory. So we keep persisting, keep planting seeds, and keep watering the seeds because we know that some of those seeds will bear fruit. So and finally, I think this text should also encourage us in our own continued growth in Christ because that slow dawning and that slow growth often continues, always continues, after we are born again. How often are you frustrated by the continuing presence of sin in your heart, your mind, your actions? I hope all the time, right? I hope you still see that you have sin that's a problem and that it bothers you. I hope you hate your sin. 
You can't love your sin at the same time as you're loving Jesus. But I also don't want you to become depressed and defeated by the continuing presence of sin in your life because God is not depressed and defeated by the continuing presence of sin in your life. He has chosen the foolish things of the world, and that's you and me, to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world, that's you and me, to put to shame the strong. And as you are weak and as you stumble and as you go back to him over and over for more forgiveness, more grace, more help from the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, you can remember this. All of that is evidence that Jesus is at work in you. You you can't do that on your own. You don't want to do that on your own. He is at work in you both to will and to work to his good pleasure. Mm -hmm. If you are walking with Christ, you are working. He is working in you. Even if you don't see it in the moment, even if your vision feels fuzzy and blurry and it's like, I just see trees. Keep looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and trust that one day he will make your vision perfectly clear. And on that day, you will be like him because you will see him as he is. Let's pray. Father God, would you help us to see Help us to see your son for who he is. Thank you that we can see truly, even though our vision is not yet perfect. We are not, we are still in this body of sin. Your spirit has drawn us to you and opened our eyes to who Christ is. We can see truly who he is and be transformed by that sight. And so help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And help us to be conduits of your grace, sharing that truth, that life with others, that they too might know, that they might see the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.